Thanks for being with us. We'll have a bit more for you later on in the program from today's news conference. The provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, as well as Adrian Dix, updating us on the walk-in Wednesday numbers, the number of shots delivered, as well as where we are standing right now as far as preparing for going back to school and what could be happening in the fall. So more on that coming up. Right now, though, we're going to shift our focus just a little bit to take a look at the economic impacts and and the economic preview when it comes to what's happening in BC. And Ken Peacock is with us, Chief Economist and Senior Vice President for the Business Council of British Columbia. Thanks so much for being with us. You're very welcome. Good to be with you, Jill. Yeah, thanks for being versatile. We had that news conference. It was a bit last minute. So glad you could still join us and talk about this. When we look ahead or we look at which industries are still really struggling, which ones have come back, what do we know at this point? Um, yeah, it's a great question. It, it, it's interesting, Joe. You know, for the most part, uh, there's there's fairly broad uh, upswing across sectors now. In fact, we say somewhere in our document there that uh, the, the BC economy is almost firing on all cylinders. Of course, the international tourism space and some parts of hospitality are, are, are still struggling. And exactly, you know, how long until a more fulsome recovery unfolds there is difficult to say. But but Jill, if, if, if we look back over the goods producing sector here in BC, so I'm talking construction, uh, resource manufacturing, those time, types of exporting activities, uh, land-based production, forestry, of course, um, this, this segment of the economy really fared quite well over the pandemic and kind of differentiates BC's performance uh, against other provinces. Um, so that part's doing well. And now, of course, with the reopening of film and television, uh, that, that, that sector is really expanding and growing. So, you know, it, there's a lot of bright lights, but there are still a few weak spots, if I could say it that way. Sure. When we look at so where BC's economy is slated to grow, looking at some of the numbers from the Business Council, looking at about 5.8 this year compared to the global economy, the projection there about 6.9. What do you think about those numbers? Uh, yeah, the big big rebound um, at, at the global level, uh, absolutely. And it, if you read our report closely, the, the Canadian economy is projected to go around 6% this year. And we have BC coming in a little bit less at 5, 5.8%. First of all, I'll make the comment, these are big numbers for an advanced industrial economy. So growth, 5, 6, 6.5%. Big numbers, uh, unusual times because they're coming out of the pandemic. So a couple tenths of a percentage point. I mean, forecasting is challenging in in kind of normal times. It's particularly challenging now. Uh, So I don't worry too much about the small differences. But I will say, you know, it's very interesting. BC, the whole, the recession, how deep the downturn was in 2020 was much more mild. In fact, we had the, the smallest downturn in 2020 of all the large provinces so in that sense, we're not in as big of a hole. So when you get that rebound effect, uh, it doesn't flatter the year-over-year comparison, the growth numbers as much. So it's kind of perverse. Our growth might not be quite as strong as Canada, but we're in much better shape because we weren't in as big of a, a hole to start with. Which makes sense. What does that mean then as far as the federal programs that are still in place that have been extended to October that are are helping people? Does it mean that in BC perhaps there aren't as many people or we don't need those programs as much? Well, it, it does to some degree. I, those programs are still targeted at businesses that are struggling 
you know, with, with revenues and, and traffic, customer traffic and whatnot. So the hospitality sector, the businesses that are up and operating in manufacturing space, you know, the, the, the large construction sites and the pubs, they, they won't be claiming uh, much of this. So I think those, those remaining uh, supports are, are more targeted um, and how they will be unwound and when they will be unwound kind of is, is, a, is a little bit of a, a dance and a fine line because when it's appropriate uh, is, is difficult to say so. But uh, it, it's got to be coming soon, Jill. We're, we're, we're through a, a lot of this and uh, the economy is reopening and really we're talking very, very robust uh, growth and upturn right now and, and indeed right through to 2022 as well. Uh, looking at one of the other charts uh, that the council has put out, uh, you talked about GDP employment as well, a huge swing if you're looking from 2019 to 2020 and 2021, as well as housing starts. Seem, it seem, looks like the forecast is getting back to where we were around 2019 uh, numbers. Yeah, yeah, that, absolutely. The the job, the employment market, again, the, the story is consistent with BC being doing a little bit better than the rest of Canada. Uh, remarkably, our, our level of employment is now above where it was in February 2020, heading into this pandemic. So we saw that huge 400,000 plus loss in jobs and then a, a sharp rebound when things reopened. And then it kind of leveled out a little bit. But we've seen uh, employment growth recover here in British Columbia. It, can, it continues to advance. And like I said, we are in a better position in terms of uh, regaining those jobs. What's interesting is there still are these hard, harder hit areas, the, the food and accommodation space and whatnot. And we haven't seen employment fully recover there. So when those jobs come back online, I expect we will have fairly strong job growth here in the province. And you will hear more, uh, and we've already heard some employers talk about hiring challenges. You will hear more of that. And a lot of that has to do with the fact, you know, some of these workers have been furloughed for, for over a year right now uh, in, in, you know, the food and hospitality sector. So they may have gone on to other jobs or decided to pull out of the labor market entirely. So I think this rehiring process and re- full reopening is going to be somewhat uh, problematic and, and create some challenges uh, through the remainder of the year. And how dependent do you think that will be getting to that full reopening or getting to that point on both vaccination rates and the border reopening? You know, I, I look at our vaccination rates. I'm for sure not an expert in the area, but we monitor it pretty closely because obviously it's so interlinked w- with the economy uh, and everything I see. Canada, we're doing very, very well in Canada. We have high high rates of participation. You know, Canadians, we, we appear to be pretty good at, at getting va- vaccinated and, and coming along. So we're going to be in good shape. The, the challenge and the difficulty is the unevenness across other countries. And, you know, we've, we hear about uh, variants spiking and rising. And so the, the, the reality that the vaccination program is very uneven across countries, I think, is one of the reasons that, you know, we're optimistic about international tourism recovering. But exactly when that is and what it looks like is more complicated. And I don't think we see a more fulsome recovery in that international travel space until 2022 is my sense. And and just to touch on something quickly, you said, too, that the issue with workers that have been furloughed and have moved on, how big of an issue do you think that's going to be then when these sectors start reopening, trying to get employees? Oh, I, it's it's going to be an issue and it's going to be, be challenging for them. You know, I pick up tidbits in the news and different uh, different uh, restaurateurs and stuff speaking on this issue. And it is there's no doubt it's it's going to be real. 
I think the sector often struggles with, uh, you know, people, high, high turnover. Uh, often it's a, an entry point for people, you know, young people into the labor market. So the labor issues, I think, in general were difficult and somewhat challenging heading into the pandemic with all this turn and people getting supports and perhaps reconsidering different careers, I, I think it's going to be a, a, a real challenge for them. But but let's remember this sector, and I would say the economy in, in general, uh, it's resilient and adaptable. And, and uh, the sector, the restaurant industry, to my mind, proves to be f- quite resilient and quite adaptable when you think about the shift to takeout and the fact that many of these restaurants have survived uh, like a protracted period of close down and lower sales. So I, I remain optimistic they'll be fine, but I do expect challenges. First, though, taking a look at salmon habitat in the lower Fraser region and some new research shows that much of the salmon habitat has been lost. This is according to research coming out of UBC. So what can be done about that. Dr. Tara Martin is a professor in the Faculty of Forestry Department and the Department of Forest and Conservation Sciences at UBC and joins us on the line now. Thanks so much for being available and talking with us today. Thanks, Jill, for having me. What specifically were you looking at here? In this research, we wanted to understand what has happened in the Lower Fraser in particular over the last 150 years. So this part of the the world in which many of us live used to be a thriving network of floodplains and rivers and creeks and eddies that salmon uh, were found in abundance. But over the last 150 years, as we've developed these areas to live, we've steadily eroded that salmon habitat. So we wanted to understand how much salmon habitat has actually been lost. And the number 85% sounds pretty major. It is major. So 85% of the former floodplain habitat and then 64% of the former stream habitat has been lost or is no longer accessible. So what does that mean? So the floodplains um, are, are, were drained um, for agriculture and, and residential development, and the streams have been fragmented by, by our roads and other types of development. So every time a road crosses a creek or a stream, it potentially cuts off um, habitat for salmon. Are there specific salmon populations then that you looked at or that you discovered in this study that perhaps are more vulnerable or more more impacted by this than others? Exactly. So in the entire Fraser River system, there's about 54 distinct populations across five species which use the the Fraser. Uh, Within the lower Fraser, some of those populations are more impacted than others. So there's some populations of Chinook, for example, that complete their entire life cycle in the lower Fraser. And interestingly, you know, Chinook, we've heard a lot about those populations because they support southern resident killer whales. And so we found that Chinook in particular have really been impacted by this habitat loss. Is there a way then, I'm not sure if this research or this study looked at this, does it look at what perhaps could be done or ways to get some of that habitat back? 
Exactly. So this work is really foundational for informing us where can we restore and get access back to that habitat that's been alienated. So for example, we have over 1,200 barriers, which include dams and floodgates, culverts um, that have been mapped. And now we're looking at which of those barriers should we restore, remove in priority to have the biggest benefit for salmon. I found it interesting, too. I should have asked you this uh, right off the top. The, what you actually looked at to go and find this out, looking at old uh, surveyor records, topographical maps, was it? how was it uh, trying to find all of that or getting access to all of that to even do the research? Yeah, this is really a fun uh, type of research because it combines this kind of forensic historical analysis, looking through all the old archives of the early surveyor maps uh, and the, the journals from surveyors, um, as well as using some really great kind of modern uh, mathematical modeling. And so this work was led by my master's student, Riley Finn, and he pulled together, you know, these different types of data in order to build this map of historical salmon habitat and then overlay that with all of the the barriers that currently exist, these floodgates and dams and culverts, to estimate how much of that habitat, that historical habitat, has been lost. And when we're talking about a region that's so large, talking about the Lower Fraser region, uh, an area, uh, Boundary Bay uh, in South Delta, uh, all the way to Hope, is it that there were ways that maybe could have been, development could have gone ahead and also maintained these salmon habitats or at least access to salmon? Or is it that with development, it was inevitable that, that this would, in fact, take over some of these areas? I think it was inevitable that we could we would take over some areas, so particularly the floodplain, which much of that was drained to support agriculture. However, there's huge opportunity to restore some of that floodplain and also to restore a, a lot of the, the streams that have been blocked off from road culverts. So all of those culverts that are, that are in place, they could easily be converted to salmon-friendly passages. And so that's really where we want to take this research next, is to understand and where should we focus our research and our, our rest- restoration efforts to have the biggest benefit for our salmon in the lower Fraser? Uh, it seems like that would be a, a rather uh, large task. Is there a specific area where you'll start doing that or maybe has been identified as the priority area? That's exactly what we're working on right now in collaboration with Raincoast Conservation Foundation and uh, First Nations uh, within the Lower Frasers to identify exactly where those priority areas will be. And any idea timing-wise? Well, how long did it take for this research to go through all of those maps and all of those old records to really figure out what we're dealing with here? Yeah, this is the the product of of two years of really hard work by by Riley, and uh, and within that we've already um, identified some of those priority places, and we're hoping to collaborate, uh, you know, with First Nations in the Lower Fraser uh, and uh, NGOs such as Raincoast to start that restoration activity um, in the coming months. All right. Well, we will check back with you, I'm sure, and see how things are going. But very fascinating research. Thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. Thank you, Jill, for having me.
Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. We are talking now about some post-secondary unions, some faculty associations, as well as members of the community, all calling on the BC government to bring in stronger public health measures on campuses in advance of September, in advance of people heading back to school. And joining me to talk more about what that might look like is Katie Gravestock, Chief Steward for the Teaching Support Staff Union. Katie, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. What are your biggest concerns about what the school year is going to look like come September? Yeah, my my biggest concerns, and that's what we're trying to address in the open um, letter that we just released, today um, is that basically there are no health protocols in place for the return to campus in the fall. Um, So the guidelines that we have for the province um, for the COVID-19 return, um, they were released on July 5th. um, And basically they're relying um, really on vaccine optimism. Um, There aren't any other real um, safety protocols in place. So This letter um, is calling on on some basic protocols to be put in place to keep post-secondary communities um, safe. Um, So some some of those um, protocols that we're calling for are establishing um, ventilation, uh, provincial guidelines, um, improving ventilation, mandating masks for classrooms and indoor settings, um, setting occupancy limits for shared spaces and classrooms, um, maintaining classroom configurations um, that enable um, two-meter physical distancing and also providing uh, testing on site on campuses. Is the group calling or would, would you also be calling on mandatory vaccinations for people who are coming back to campus? That is not something that we're calling for in the letter, but that is something that um, we are hearing a lot more um, voices um, asking for that. And that's something that I personally would like to see, um, but we haven't addressed that in this particular open letter. And of the things you just mentioned, things like improved ventilation, uh, mask mandates for classrooms, and when people are indoors, being able to maintain that distance in those indoor settings. Uh, what, of, what of those do you think are kind of the, the most problematic? Or when we look at the school environment, uh, what what of those, if not all of them, I guess, but what would be at the top of the list as far as uh, where you feel there is the most danger? Mm-hmm. That's a really great question. For me, I really think having um, masks mandated for indoor settings is really important as we have seen throughout COVID that that actually does really help reduce the risk. Um, and when, one of the issues that we really have with the um, guidelines that the province has released is that they actually state in the guidelines that environments such as post-secondary institutional settings uh, are low-risk sites for COVID-19 transmission, um, which is totally false. Um, A lot of the classrooms, especially at Simon Fraser University, are really old. They have poor ventilation. A lot of them are in basements without windows. Um, And so having those classrooms full of students and having teachers have to be in those classrooms without any type of safety protocols in place is really quite scary. Um, Especially there's no there's no occupancy limits. So, you know, you can have huge lecture halls packed with students um, sitting right next to each other um, without masks. And that's quite a fear. 
Is it possible when you mention a lecture hall, and I think anybody that's been in one knows exactly what you're talking about, how many people are kind of packed into that one space. Is there a way to do lectures to make sure everybody's involved that's taking the class and still have occupancy limits and and the configuration to make people distanced? I believe so. I mean, we have we have had classes, um, although not too many, but we have had classes run throughout um, uh, the pandemic, especially at SFU and the sciences, and they've maintained really safe um, safety protocols. And, you know, these are just the basic protocols that have been in place, such as mandating masks, uh, occupancy limits, um, and having physical distancing. So I think that is very easy to set up. Um, and I think it's especially concerning going forward into the fall now um, that it does appear that we're entering into a fourth wave in BC with the high case numbers and the Delta variant. Um, so I think, you know, these are just really basic protocols that we're calling for and that we um, know have worked so far with the pandemic. I know that the letter has just been released, but what are you hoping or or is there a timeline as far as when you're hoping to get some kind of feedback or get a response to it? Yeah, we're hoping to hear back from the province as soon as possible um, because, you know, the return is about a month away now. And so we really we want to make sure that we have some basic safety protocols in place so people can feel safe returning in the fall because I know at um, most campuses are planning for almost a full return. At SSU, they're planning for about an 80% in-person teaching and learning um, return in the fall. Um, so, yeah, as soon as possible would be the best to um, just have some uh, peace of mind around this. We're looking at some other post-secondary institutions across the country. I know there is a college in Ontario, in Toronto, that is making it mandatory that people be vaccinated for students and staff, anybody who's coming back to be on the campus. Do you think that would work in BC if it was up to the individual schools, or do you think it needs to be a provincial mandate? Uh, I think it needs to be a provincial mandate because uh, with our union uh, teaching port support staff union, we have been in very like a lot of meetings recently with senior administrators, and we basically we've been pushing for these types of protocols. We've also asked about proof of vaccination, and we're basically hearing um, the response back that they're they're not going to implement any safety measures beyond what the province has outlined. So we really need the province at this moment in time to really take leadership um, and implement these kinds of uh, protocols to make sure that workers and students are safe on campuses. Uh, If it did turn out that, say, people that were coming back to campuses, and I'm not even sure how you would go about uh, proving this or or who would do this, but if it did turn out that there was a very high vaccination rate for staff and students at any particular campus, say 90 plus percent, would that be enough, do you think, to then not have to go ahead with the other uh, measures that you're calling for? I think we still need to have, like, I think that's a real big issue, especially with the new knowledge we have of Delta and where, you know, there are um, other countries that do have really high vaccination rates and they are still seeing spikes in um, number of cases. So I really think we need to have both in place. We need to have vaccinations and then we also need to have these um, public health protocols in place. Do you think there will be people or are you hearing from people, either staff or students, that will be reluctant or won't go back if these measures aren't in place? 
I haven't heard that yet, but I, I definitely do know that we're getting a lot of um, emails and phone calls from our members um, who are really concerned about the return. So it's hard to say. I think everyone is just hoping at this moment, since it is a month away, that the government um, will take a leadership role on this and will put in extra safety precautions. Because you mentioned too, and I know others have brought this up, not only at the post-secondary level, but also at elementary and secondary levels as well, questioning, saying this was the plan that was brought out in July. And we have seen things change, whether it's right now dealing with the central Okanagan outbreak, or as you mentioned, the Delta variant, we have seen some shifting of things and maybe it's time to relook at the back to school plan. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, things were quite a bit different even just a month ago. Right. And so now we are seeing um, this huge increase in numbers. And it it is really apparent that um, we do need to take another look at the guidelines. Um, So those guidelines were released July 5th and things have really changed a lot with the Delta variant. Um, And we know that with Delta, COVID is much more infectious. So we really need to take these extra steps now. All right, Katie. And, and we also need to. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. We also just really need to make sure that we're we're protecting you know vulnerable people in the community as well. Like especially for people who live with chronic conditions and maybe immune compromised, even young children who the vaccine has not been approved for yet. So when we're all going back to campuses in the fall, without these protocols in place, we really risk bringing COVID home to our family members who may be more vulnerable too. All right, Katie, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much. And uh, we'll be looking forward to any update on this. But thanks for coming on the program today. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Well, the price is hefty, about $13.7 billion. That is the figure that is included in a report that was put out by the Parliamentary Budget Officer earlier this week. It takes a look at what it would cost to end wait lists for long-term care, to increase staff pay and benefits, and to provide more hours of care each day, as well as expanding home care for people who need home care as well. Does that figure make sense? Are there other things we should be focusing on? Let's bring in Dan Levitt, who is the executive director of Tabor Village, to talk a bit more about this. Dan, great to have you back on the show. Hi, Jill. Great to be here. Uh, What are your thoughts on that report and the number of $13.7 billion to fix long-term care? Well, I was very encouraged to to hear about this report, very encouraged to know uh, that an MP from British Columbia had put forward um, a motion in Parliament um, to make some sweeping changes to that are really needed in in long-term care and that would po- poise us better for the baby boomers and for preventing the kinds of things that we saw happen in the past year and a half with COVID. And I think having those four areas that you talked about, that um, anybody who's eligible for long-term care wouldn't have to wait, uh, that wages and benefits would help, I believe, address the human re- health human resource crisis that we're seeing and also increasing the direct care hours by from uh, around three on average in Canada to the four, I think that would also help attract people to come back and new people to come into long-term care to work. And of course, home care, increasing home care um, has really been a push, especially with um, surveys that are done around people's um, unlikely or, or how they avoid moving into long-term care, how they want to age in place at home. So I think this is very important and I'm hoping that we'll see some promises made in by the political parties federally in in advance of the next election. Why do you think it took a pandemic for us to start really paying attention to this? 
That's a very good question. Um, a lot of these issues, um, those of us who have who have had any experience, um, either with someone who lives in care or works in care, uh, we've we've known about these challenges for a long time. And uh, perhaps it's ageism, our own ageism, societal priorities. Um, but I really think um, now that the spotlight has been shined on some of the cracks of the system, we have no choice but to make um, changes immediately. And with that federal election upcoming. Um, if we can see that kind of investment of $13.7 billion, um, the budget currently is $23.7 billion across Canada, so um, it would be a significant increase. Um, I think our seniors deserve it, and I think that's the kind of conversation we need to have, um, is um, how do we want to see Canada age in the future? And this report, I think, helps to um, channel some conversation around that important issue. There often seems to be a lot of people who who put the idea out there or say that we should put an end to any for-profit long-term care. They want it all to be in the public system. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that, whether that is a good idea, because certainly the issues that were raised during the pandemic and still being raised are not only in private long-term care facilities. I mean, look at what happened in Quebec, look at what happened in other facilities. It was both. So what are your thoughts on the argument being about private versus public? Well, it's, it's a good question to ask. And I think um, when we start looking at the, uh, the results of where those outbreaks were, and uh, we see that there were some for-profits, there were some non-profits, and there were some owned and operated. And my understanding is currently um, some of the outbreaks in the interior of the province, those are in owned and operated. Those are government-run um, um, uh, facilities where um, the funding is from government and the people who, who work there are are within the collective agreement and it is you know a non-profit essentially. So I, I don't think that necessarily is the way we're going to get through this. And um, to if we were to change that, the capital investment in those buildings and properties for, for government to take those over, that's a significant investment. So I'm not sure how that would even work practically. So I don't think we can always sort of blame the, the profit side of, of healthcare. There's lots of profit being made in healthcare generally. Um, we often talk about that in long-term care, and I do think it's a bit of a red herring. It's an important issue to talk about, but I think we should really be be, be committed to making the kinds of change that we need to trans, transformative change. And in BC, um, the past couple decades, we have relied on the, the private sector to make a lot of that change. Um, so my sense is that we have to move forward with our best options, but we really have to make that big investment in order to see the kinds of changes that we all want for our seniors. Right. And I've thought of, of that, about that as well. And having had the loved ones in long-term care, to me, it's not a question of whether it's public or private. The question, I, I mean, it could be another question of, uh, is government really the best entity to be running long-term care facilities. I think a lot of people would say no, but if it's the same benchmark, if it's the same standards that are being put out for all long-term care facilities, then it really shouldn't matter as long as the inspections are done, as long as whoever it is running it is is adhering to the guidelines and making sure it is the best possible care. Yeah, you're 100% correct. We should be making sure that it is um, all a level playing field, that the funding is the exact same um, depending on, on where you are. It shouldn't be any different. Um, the staffing should be the same. The resources available to support that organization should be similar. And you're right, it should, there should be accountability there. So I think that's much more important. 
then that conversation around the nonprofit versus private versus government operated. And I, I do think it's much more about the culture that you have inside that building. What does it feel like? Um, what are the smells like? What does the food taste like? What's the toast like in the morning? How good's the coffee? And uh, you know, are are um, do we lose a lot of laundry or not? So you start looking at all those issues and. Uh, you know, to say that one group does it better than the other, I'm not sure if that's true. I think it's much more important to look at the standards that are being met. Uh, it's interesting you say that and even bringing up something that might seem as simple as toast. And for me, it was always as as somebody who's not in long-term care, when you go and visit a loved one or you visit somebody in the facility, how do you feel when you leave? If you feel guilty when you leave, then then that person probably isn't in the best place. If you feel okay, yes, my loved one is getting great care and I'm okay with this, then I mean, it, it seems to say a lot. You're 100% correct. And Jill, you're, you're reminding me, I just just a general conversation um, I have around food services. I love talking about you know food because we that's really one of those things that no matter where you on our where you are on your dementia journey, you have you, your taste buds work and you can enjoy food and you can have the opposite experience. So if you have food that that looks appetizing, even though it might be pureed, it might look like um, the, the food the food item that it previously was before it was pureed. Um, you can make them look attractive. Uh, you can. We, we had in our sister living um, community uh, yesterday. We had burgers and hot dogs and corn on the cob, and it was delicious. And uh, there's no reason why you can't do that in complex care as well. You should feel there's quality there that people are are being nourished and uh, feel totally um, um, dignified with the services they're getting. And it goes from food to to the way that they're cared for around if they're incontinent or. Um, even around um, if they have to live with a stranger in the same room. So all those things matter. I really think if we can make changes to to the long-term care communities that we all um, have some kind of contact with, no matter what happens. At some point, we're going to have contact So um, with a loved one or a neighbor that has um, someone in care. So if we can make those improvements, I think we'll all be better off as Canadians. So looking at some of the things that we brought up first, though, one of the things is providing more hours of care each day, because I think, again, people might think that that that's not an issue, that if you're in a long term care facility, there's going to be care provided because there are people there whose job it is to do that. But how much of an issue is it as far as the number of hours of care people are getting? Well, I think it's a, it's a huge issue. I was, we, we had a barbecue with our staff today and I was talking to some of them about this issue, and it would make things a lot more attractive to bringing more people into the field and into direct care. Um, right now we have approximately 3.36 direct care hours in British Columbia. Um, this motion is calling for um, at least four hours of direct care, and that's a $4.3 billion investment, and I think um, that's a good deal for getting um, more people back working because the, the, uh, the, the staff are so stretched with, with the, the higher acuity levels that are coming in. People are moving into nursing homes much further along in their, their disease process. So having those, those extra hours of care will make a huge difference. And you know, we all hear things like, you know, how often do you get bathed and showered when you're living in long-term care? So this will increase the ability to provide uh, the most humane possible services we can. So I think it's critically important that we add more hours of direct care uh, for people who live in care. And wanted to ask you one other question. Last time we talked, we also touched on the issue of mandatory vaccinations when it comes to healthcare workers. Uh, and I remember you had said the lowest at one of the facilities where you uh, are involved was 53%. The highest was about 80. Uh, there is more talk about that possibility, the mandatory vaccinations. What are your thoughts on the fact that it is looking as though it could go to that model? 
Jill, since we last spoke, I'm very encouraged to know that uh, more and more staff are, are becoming uh, vaccinated and our numbers are, are creeping up in the right direction. Um, we, we have moved from 50 to a much higher number. And so I was talking to um, several of our sports services staff yesterday who made the decision recently to become vaccinated. And I think things like rapid testing, um, no one really wants to go through that. It's not that comfortable having something put deep inside um, your nose and uh, also wearing PPE. If you don't have to wear PPE, um, why would you? So I think staff are, are going to, as um, you know, so, you know, some restrictions are kind of tightened, um, we'll see more and more people get vaccinated. And I do think that family members don't really want their loved one to be cared for someone who's, who's unvaccinated. And we've seen We've seen outbreaks now in the interior. I think that's coming to the rest of the province. Um, we should expect it. We should be prepared for it. We'll see smaller outbreaks. But if people are vaccinated, that's their, our best defense, is simply being vaccinated. So if we have to mandate it, I hope it doesn't come to that, but we have to mandate it, that will protect everybody. And I know that some of our colleagues um, in other homes, um, they're not hiring anybody unless they are vaccinated. So there are some tools we have, but if, if we had mandatory vaccination in, in B.C., uh, that would go a long way to ensuring we don't have outbreaks like we had um, the past year and a half. Right, because when we're seeing outbreaks now, is there really any way to explain it other than it's coming in with unvaccinated staff? Yeah, so if, if staff are the ones who are bringing um, COVID in, which was the majority of the cases, um, we would think that if they're unvaccinated, they're bringing it. Now, we know that you can be vaccinated and still um, spread Delta to somebody else, but the chance of that happening is rarer than somebody who's unvaccinated. So it's likely an unvaccinated person. It could be a family member, but that's been rare. And there are some seniors in care who aren't vaccinated as well. So you might, that's probably what's happening. But we'll have sm- those outbreaks will be very small and, and hopefully contained. We won't see the widespread um, pro- situations we had before. So vaccinated is the way to go. All right, Dan Levitt, always appreciate your time on the program. Thanks so much for joining us today. Anytime, Jill.